Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hoods here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. Matt and I are hunkered in our bunkers in, in trusty New England, far apart, coming to you through the matter, through the, through the wisdom of the Googles, but you can hear all our archived shows. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So anywhere in the world you're traveling with an empty airplane, empty car, empty boat, uh, feel free to tune in on the Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're very pleased to welcome to Off the Record uh, Justin Levitt. Justin is a professor of law, the Associate Dean for Research, a Gerald T. McLaughlin Fellow at the Loyola Law School in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, California, where the sun always shines, and especially since uh, there are no cars on the road anymore in LA, the weirdest thing anybody's ever seen. Uh, the skies are blue, the pollution is down. Justin and his colleagues are breathing. Um, Justin is a nationally recognized scholar of constitutional law and the law of democracy. Uh, he served as a deputy assistant attorney general in the civil rights division of the US Department of Justice, where he worked principally on voting rights. And he is a nationally recognized expert on voting and democracy and election law. He's been invited to testify before committees of the US House and Senate, the US Civil Rights Commission, several state legislative bodies, and both federal and state courts. And his research has been cited extensively in the media and the courts, including the United States Supreme Court. Nice to know that they actually read research, though with some of their decisions, who knows whether or not they follow the research. But in any event, I don't want to digress into a rant about the Supreme Court and its current makeup, except to remind our listeners that elections have consequences and the next election may very well have serious consequences for whoever sits on the Supreme Court. So think about that when you contemplate the great orange Cheeto telling us to open up the country before COVID-19 is licked. But I digress again. Justin, welcome to Off the Record. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, we, we talk in perilous and interesting times. Uh, the country, at least large swaths of it, um, are shut down. There is a great policy debate going on about whether or not business as usual should be reopened, to what degree and how it should happen, and what are the conditions and what are the factors. Uh, we have seen recent primaries and political contests and life in this country upended, totally upended. Uh, there is no politician pressing anybody's flesh. Uh, no babies are being presented to be kissed. Uh, there is no door-to-door -door knocking. Uh, in recent uh, primary elections, we saw long lines of people wearing masks and holding signs and people falling ill after getting together to vote. We've seen poll works where workers wearing hazmat suits. And all of this is uh, in the face of an upcoming presidential election in November, a few short months away. It's amazing how time will fly between now and then. 
when serious questions about our voting, our elections, how they happen, what should happen, how our districts are drawn, how they should be drawn, and what the state of our democracy will be when in the most recent days we've seen gun-toting groups of armed men, primarily white men, on the steps of capitals around the nation, taking, taking pictures. I mean, I saw a picture of, of, of assault rifles held high in the Kentucky State House that reminded me of a, of a, of a scene of jihadist terror in the Middle East. Um, so we're in, we're in quite a time, Professor. Um, yeah, this is, this is uh, I don't know, I keep thinking about the um, title of the movie, No Time for Old Men, uh, but there are powerful cross currents at work in these United States and um, wondering with an immediate concern, the 2020 election. So in the wake of what happened in Wisconsin, as well as uh, the Supreme Court's decision not to do anything about it, how concerned should we all be about the ability of the United States of America to hold a free and fair 2020 general election? Very concerned. Um, but I think you can actually back a step up even before we get there. You mentioned all the consequences that will flow from the election coming up in November and the primary is underway now. Even before we get into election season, there is a critical democratic moment occurring as we speak and very uh, an awful lot of concern um, that it will be accurate. And I'm speaking there to the US Census. Every 10 years since 1790, we have tried to count the American public. And that has immense ramifications for trillions of dollars of funding throughout the course of a decade, for representation, for the information that we get as a society. It's, it's the picture of how we know who we are. And just as you noted, uh, that this global pandemic is upending political campaigns and politics as usual. It is upending census response as well. Um, the good news is that the census had already prepared long before the pandemic to move more of this year's census into remote response than ever before, right? To try and catch people over the internet, to try to catch people by phone, to try and catch people by mail, um, all of which is an even more emphatic push uh, in these pandemic times. But we're now entering the range of uh, what normally is door-to-door -door response to catch all of the people whom we missed remotely. And even before we get to this fall's elections, there's a lot of concern about the degree to which the Census Bureau is going to be able to find uh, all of the people that we need to find in order to know who we are. This is a time of an awful lot of disruption, and uh, the Census Bureau can plan for modest amounts of disruption. This one counts as a five-alarm fire. So I want to come back to the voting issues, which are front and center of my mind. But since you've gone to the census, which is another on fire issue, let's let's go all the way there. So just for our listeners sake, you literally wrote the book or scholarly article. What's the difference on the Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question to the census? So we know that there have been attempted shenanigans when it comes to the census. What should Democrats, really all Americans, who care about the integrity of this fundamental process, what should we be watching out for in terms of further shenanigans, uh, further skullduggery? Um, is there anything that Democrats can do now to monitor the situation? 
or anything that Biden could do if he wins to try and safeguard the census process. Could I just add, could you address one preliminary question? And why is it so important? I mean, what does the census matter? And I ask that because there may be some of our listeners who say, I'm in the middle of a pandemic. You're talking about a presidential election. Why should we really worry about a census? Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Let's do this as a one-two punch. It's a great question and something that really every person in the country, citizen, non-citizen, visitor, guest, whomever, should be really worried about. So the census is the way we know who we are. It's the way we distribute money and it's the way we make policy. It drives representation at federal government, at state government, at local government, the amount of voice that you have in every policy decision that comes next every single one for the next 10 years is driven by the count in the census. It is the reason why the census is the sixth sentence in the US Constitution, right? From the get-go, it comes before Congress's ability to tax, it comes before the executive, the president's ability to wage war, it comes before the courts, it comes before everything. It's the first thing that the founders told the federal government to do, literally the first, command, because it drives all representation and now, as I mentioned, trillions of dollars of funding over the course of 10 years. So every person who doesn't respond, and by the way, the information, one of the, the more seriously taken responsibilities in the federal government is to keep that information secure, locked up, so that individuals cannot be identified based on their census response. That is uh, taken incredibly seriously. And I'm happy to say, even now, um, this administration has departed from an awful lot of norms, but that one remains strong in part because it's in the hands of career officials. Um, so the information the census takes in, every person who doesn't respond costs themselves and their communities funding and representation immediately. And every person who does respond gets funding and representation for themselves and their loved ones in their communities. Um, so with so much on the line, and, and give the high level of trust we all have in the confidence of uh, the current administration, what should we all be worried about? What should we be watching out for? Is there anything that elected representatives and regular citizens can do to make sure that people aren't monkeying around with the census? So I think the first thing that people should know is that just like the public hangs on Dr. Fauci and his recommendations during the pandemic, the career officials at the Census Bureau are really good at what they do and really want to see this work. These are people who've been working at the Census Bureau for decades and whose job it is to make sure that we are as accurate as possible in counting people and only that. Um, and the good news is that despite some of the shenanigans uh, last year and in years prior, and in part because of the response to the shenanigans, big outrage from nonprofits, from elected officials, from the courts, including the Supreme Court, uh, the career officials have by and large been allowed so far to do their jobs. That's the good news. The Dr. Fauci's of the Census Bureau are actually running the show. Um, there are certainly ample amounts of potential for mischief in the future but only when the process comes out of the hands of the career officials and into the hands of elected ones. And there are lots of safeguards watching that transfer, like Hawk, and watching the delivery of the data 
toward the end of this year or potentially into the beginning of next year. So um, there are lots of eyes on the process in part because this is so tremendously crucial. Really the thing for people to do and or watch and or support now is the response rate in their own communities. So if they are in touch with family members or friends or other community members and they have not yet filled out the census, now is the time, this can't be done later. Now is the time to not only respond yourselves, but to encourage everyone you know, wherever they happen to live, to respond. That's the, the single most important uh, aspect of what we can do right now. People talk about getting out the vote. Getting out the count is equally dependent on us talking to each other about how important this is. I have a really odd and cynical question because um, in the White House, there is so much consternation about the deep state. It sounds from your description like the folks at the Census Bureau are the deepest of the deep state, having been there entrenched in that, in that counting house, the great counting house in the sky for so, for so long. If, if, if a politician who was in charge of things wanted to make real trouble uh, in addition to proposing, you know, un unconstitutional citizenship questions. What other kinds of trouble could be, could be made that somebody's got to be watching out for? I'll say the biggest trouble that somebody could foster is actually shaking the confidence of the American people that it's safe to answer the census, right? The, it, it turns out that retail disinformation, misinformation, and loss of confidence is among the greatest threats globally uh, to our ability to respond and our ability to self-govern. And that's as true in the census as it is anywhere else. Um, there are actually fail-safes, both uh, fail-safes in the courts and in the law and fail-safes in the political process for, for sort of back-end manipulation of the numbers by uh, political appointees. The thing you can't fix, the thing you can't uh, change and the thing that's really hard to prevent is people doubting whether they can trust the process of filling out the census forms itself. The, the decision to put the citizenship question on the census was done in order to depress turnout, in order to uh, encourage people not to answer the questionnaire. Now for all your listeners, I want to be abundantly clear, the courts said you can't do that and the census forms that are going out house to house or that have come in the mail or where you've gotten a card to respond over the internet um, in a safe and protected way, uh, do not ask about citizenship or immigration status at all. Um, the courts actually set that right. But that entire enterprise over the last couple of years was designed to make people feel less secure about answering the question itself. And so the greatest mischief really we've seen over and over and over again is playing with us rather than playing with the government. Um, if uh, your readers have read or followed the Mueller report, you know that we were hacked in 2016. And I don't mean machines or databases or electronics. I mean, we the people were hacked. The thing that was done was a military attack on our faith in ourselves and in our social processes. And that is the single most dangerous uh, most effective and most dangerous weapon to be used against us, the inoculation 
is exactly programs like your show, letting people know the real information, letting them know that the census is legit and has been since the 1790s, letting them know that it's actually safe to respond and that it's beneficial to respond. The inoculation is an informed public. And uh, so far, thankfully, that's been working pretty well. Well, this is Vladimir Putin cutting into off record with Hodes and, and Robinson. I want to tell you, we didn't hack anybody. This is lies. This is lies. I deny. I deny completely. We no hack anybody, but we did want some information. And now a little misinformation uh, goes a long way. You people, you are so sad. And look at who you have in White House, my dear friend, Donald trump uh, Thank you, President. Putin, that's quite enough. This is off the record. It improved its security measures. That's it. New and improved. This is off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We're talking with Professor Justin Levitt. We've just finished putting to bed what happens with the United States Census. We will be back after this word from the good folks who keep us on the air. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and we are very pleased to be speaking today with Professor Justin Levitt of the Loyola Law School, an expert among other expertise in voting, election law, gerrymandering, and all the things that really are at the foundation of making a democracy work. In our first segment, we talked about the census and why it is so fundamentally important. And as Professor Levitt pointed out, before the founders talked about even taking your money in taxes, they talked about counting you in the census because if you're not counted, you don't get a voice, basically. So, Professor, let's now switch focus. Um, we have been talking on the show over a period of time when, when we're serious. And Matt and I are actually capable of, of serious discussion in addition to visits from uh, President Putin of, of Russia. We're capable of serious discussion. And we have been talking about the, the brouhaha, the current, the current flap, the current argument about whether mandated no excuse absentee voting or basically universal mail-in voting should be something that uh, folks ought to go to the mat on, should concern members of Congress. And by that, we mean Democrats, because our biases show when we talk about concerned members of Congress, Matt and I generally are talking about Democrats. I mean, given the political realities, is that an issue that folks in Congress ought to stand firm on? Is it funding? Is it, is it the battle that we need to have to show that we mean business? I think the answer is yes and. And I don't think it's gonna be just yes and for Democrats uh, come November if there's not a lot more um, permission to vote absentee and a lot more funding. An awful lot of Republicans are gonna find their seats are in jeopardy too. One thing we're learning about the pandemic is that it does not spare or favor by class or by location or by geography. Um, it certainly has had a disparate impact in certain places, but these are still, and this is painful to say, the early days. And once this pandemic spreads even further than it has already, it's not going to leave many communities untouched. 
that's going to mean Democratic voters, it's going to mean Republican voters, it's going to mean neither. Um, so an awful lot of elected officials should be a lot more concerned than they are. To your question, do we need broader use of absentee voting? Yes. Do we need more money? Yes. Uh, do we need a lot of other things, including personal protective equipment for poll workers and maybe even for voters? Also, yes. Um, this is the point to pull out all the stops. Uh, we are barely going to be able to run the elections that people are even remotely used to using an awful lot of duct tape. And so we should not skimp on spending for duct tape right now, uh, lest we find ourselves well behind the eight ball in a few months. The, there are a number of things that people can do and a number of things that election officials are doing, and those are good things. Um, number one is expanding our capacity to vote by mail. Many states are starting to press for expansions of uh, when you can request or receive or receive automatically an absentee ballot. Um, many are mirroring some of the protections our service members or overseas citizens get. Uh, we've always uh, attempted to reach our service members in a, a really spectacular logistical effort overseas using voting by mail. Uh, and many officials are turning to the same thing for people who are stuck fighting a war against, as the president says, the invisible enemy here at home. Um, whatever the normal solutions are for running an election outside of a pandemic, you've got to toss the normal rules aside this coming November. The choice is like any public policy, not what the perfect thing to do is, but weighing the pros and cons of every available response. And when gathering in masses at the polls, which is how we traditionally do much of the voting in the country, is actually a rather serious health and safety hazard, we have to turn to alternatives as much as we possibly can. Now, a lot of the country is already there and has been there for a while. Most states offer no excuse absentee voting. So if you want a mail ballot, you can get one. Um, in the Western US in particular, absentee voting and early voting going in person well before election day have both been on the rise. Uh, in California, where I'm sitting now, more than half of our ballots are cast absentee, and that was long before COVID. So we're actually in pretty good shape to ramp up from an awful lot of absentee ballots to even more absentee ballots. There are other states that are farther behind, where absentee balloting has been by far the exception rather than the rule, where people are used to a few 10,000 or 100,000 people voting by mail that are gonna find it's really tough unless we get started now to make that system available to serve millions. And unfortunately, the East Coast and particularly New England uh, has long been, has long depended on in-person voting, on actually going to the polls in a way that's just not likely to be safe this November. Now, all of us hope that we're wrong about this. All of us hope absolutely that we are fully back to sporting events and large stadiums and mass gatherings and concerts and the like and voting. But I think what we're hearing from the public health experts is that that's unlikely to happen, even if we get a breath of reprieve in the summer, that we're likely to have to at least plan for contingencies in the fall that look an awful lot like they do now, where I'll be talking to you all again in the fall over Zoom rather than seeing you in person. And if that's the case, uh, then we have to plan for an election in most states where most voters are using the mail to vote. There's simply no other practical option. So 
I want to shift gears a little bit, and gears being the operative word here, because we're really looking down in the cogs and gears of democracy here and, and kind of taking a tour around uh, voting, the census. And I want to get to an issue that's really been plaguing uh, the setup of our democracy in recent years. That's gerrymandering. And for our listeners, uh, Justin is one of the national experts on gerrymandering. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun exercise to try and uh, listen to a podcast or read an article about gerrymandering and not catch his name in it. So let's walk through it a little bit. So gerrymandering has been around since the, practically the start of the Republic. Uh, you can take us through the history and, and how it got the name. But, you know, I, in, in, in prepping to talk to you, I, I look back at the dissent that Justice Elena Kagan offered in the Supreme Court ruling on gerrymandering, where they said, you know what, we can't, we can't do anything to stop this. And she said that big data and modern technology, just the kind that map makers in North Carolina and Maryland use, make today's gerrymandering altogether different from the crude line drawing of the past. So can you explain to our listeners why is that? Why, why is Justice Kagan saying that? What's different today than good old-fashioned gerrymandering? Why is it such a big problem? So I don't actually know that the tech is to blame. It's enhanced our capabilities a little bit. But as you noted, uh, Patrick Henry tried to draw James Madison out of his seat in Virginia in the first Congress. So gerrymandering has actually been with us longer than the Republic has. It gets its name from an 1812 map in Massachusetts. And as you well know, and as anybody in the region knows, uh, if, it's, if it's called gerrymandering everywhere in the United States, it's called gerrymandering in New England after Elbridge Gerry, who designed the map in Massachusetts to favor his political party. And that is what, for most people, is at the heart of the partisan gerrymandering problem. There are lots, the, the responsibility to draw districts determines who gets voice determines which voices are represented in the legislature. And so there are lots of problems with redistricting based on race or based on favoring economic interests or based on favoring particular incumbents um, beyond just the partisan skew. The one that got the most attention recently is the partisan skew, as you point out. And map makers have been really good at preserving their own skins and punishing their enemies for a really long time in the 80s uh, California Senator Burton was in charge of the California map and called the California map his contribution to modern art. And anybody who knew him knew he was a savant at knowing exactly which neighborhoods would vote for who at what percentage detail. Uh, he didn't really need a computer. He could work all that through with index cards. The computers have made the partisan gerrymanders today more reliable and more durable. It's not a difference in kind, I don't think. I think it's a difference in degree. That is, we can be more sure now that the effects we think we're having are real and that they're likely to linger. And I think some of the guardrails have taken off as the country has sorted itself very roughly into partisan tribes. I think we find more and more states that don't have mixed partisan government, but that have unilateral partisan government, where Republicans thoroughly or Democrats thoroughly are in charge of the process of drawing lines. Brief note, if you talk to people from other countries, there's a lot that they don't understand about the American political system, but this one makes absolutely no sense to them. Why we let incumbent politicians draw the lines that determine whether they're going to be reelected to their jobs, why we let politicians choose voters instead of the other way around, 
they do not understand. And I have to say, I'm sympathetic to that. I don't really understand it either, other than past practice. Um, the states that have public initiatives, citizens' initiatives, that let citizens actually control the lawmaking, have turned increasingly to systems like California's, like Arizona's, like Utah's, like Michigan's, um, like Colorado, like Florida. There are a lot of, you just heard me name red states like Montana and Idaho, red states and blue states and purple states with the initiative have taken some of the power away from legislatures and given it to other bodies, citizens' bodies, to draw the lines. That makes an awful lot of sense. As you pointed out, the Supreme Court essentially took themselves out of the regulation of partisan gerrymanders in a very controversial case last year. Um, that was really unfortunate. And for those of us who were in the business of looking to political reform, boy, it would have been nice to see the Supreme Court recognize some of the problems, some of the real constitutional problems uh, in partisan gerrymandering. It is one of the very few places where we say the government can treat you less well because of your partisan beliefs. I mean, think about that. It should be a bedrock conservative value for the government not to treat you poorly because of what you believe. And yet the Supreme Court essentially said, for us under federal law, that's okay. Um, the relatively good news is that we were never all that dependent on the Supreme Court in this arena anyway. They had largely stayed out of partisan gerrymandering uh, rulings before 2016. There was a very brief window when it looked like the federal courts were gonna do some good. The Supreme Court said, nope, sorry, we're not letting you weigh in. But these citizens initiatives for the citizens to change their own governmental system have been picking up steam. And state courts under state constitutions have also been looking at partisan gerrymandering. So you saw cases last cycle in Florida and in Pennsylvania where the state court said, I don't care what the federal constitution says, I don't care what the Supreme Court says, we say enough. And I would expect a lot more of that going forward as well as the courts realize in 50 different courts in 50 different states that extreme partisan gerrymandering is a real problem. With the prospect that the Supreme Court, which may or may not be that important about gerrymandering, is never going to do anything about it, in a minute or two that we have before the next break, um, do, is our, our citizen initiatives the only way to solve this problem? Um, do, how do we make sure that we're not just rearranging deck chairs and swapping one set of problems for another? So this one's really thorny because in most states, the legislature has control of the law. And in order to get a change in how redistricting is done, you've got to ask the legislature for permission to sideline itself. Most legislatures aren't that interested in giving up some of their own power. And so you find in places where the citizens can take to the streets through the initiative process, they do. Michigan's a, a magnificent example. They got 400,000 signatures in the dead of winter without paying one signature gatherer. Volunteers pouring out because they'd had enough and told their legislature, we're doing things differently from now on. That process isn't available everywhere. And in states like North Carolina, where there's been no shortage of citizen engagement, there's no procedure for the citizens to make their own laws. They have to ask the legislature for permission. 
There, where initiatives aren't an option, people are turning to the courts, turning to the state courts in particular. Um, in some of these states, judicial seats are elected. And so this comes back to the election and voting process. People are voting on state Supreme Court justices in part with an eye to how favorably they look on changes to the governmental structure and yeah. lawsuits requiring changes to the governmental structure. So this became a real issue in North Carolina after nine years of lawsuits back and forth and back and forth and amazing vitriol uh, trying to get the state Supreme Court to open the rules so that the people could actually get their wishes through again. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL. We're talking with Professor Justin Levitt about democracy in America. We'll be back after this word from our sponsors. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs with Google's Darius at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and we have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Justin Levitt of the Loyola Law School. Uh, Professor Levitt is an expert in election law, voting rights, uh, really the foundations of our democracy. We've been having a discussion about what the census means, why it's important, and how it's going. And, and we've been talking a little bit about gerrymandering. Gerrymandering, or gerrymandering, as it's known in Massachusetts, gerrymandering was developed to make sure that those of us in New England would know exactly how the politicians were going to buy us. I mean, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't those commoners who are voting for the politicians. I mean, that would be a mistake. We want to make sure that we're buying the voters. So, of course, we gerrymandered or gerrymandered uh, the map of Massachusetts. It was a wonderful thing. It, it worked out very well. We've been democratic ever since. I'm so, you know, who's complaining? Certainly not the hosts of this show. So, now that we've had a visit from Colonial America and Vladimir Putin in the same, in the same radio show, it, it's only to keep our listeners on their toes. They never know whether we're going to time travel or space travel. Um, there's, we're in the middle of an unprecedented uh, occurrence, something that um, only the disaster movies predicted would happen, a pandemic that's shut down the country, that's shut down the world shut down global economies, shut down travel, restricted our, our personal interactions. It's tough on humans who like to be with each other. Um, you know, I don't know, uh, I talked to my mother this morning. She's going stir crazy and she's in New York. She's 93, so she's not going out. I'm talking to people all over, um, making uh, phone calls to see how people or folks are doing. Uh, because I'm looking at uh, candidacy for the state Senate in New Hampshire. Um, what does democracy look like as a result of the pandemic? What, what are we going to see coming out of this as the permanent changes? Does it create opportunities more than it creates challenges? 
uh, what are the opportunities, what are the challenges, and how are we going to essentially rebuild our democracy? So uh, that's a great question and, and a much bigger one than I can even afford to tackle. Let me start with... Oh, no, that's why you're here. We know you can handle this one. That was our softball for the day, Justin. Let me, let me start with hoping that your mother stays safe and well, and let me acknowledge that about the only people happy with uh, this, the current state of affairs are the dogs of the world, uh, who finally get a little more chance, time to spend with their families. Um, I, I think democracy depends on us, depends on the people who constitute it. And so how democracy responds to this pandemic really depends on how we respond to this pandemic. And I think you've actually seen a remarkable amount of truly selfless, truly interconnected behavior, even as we are all staying isolated. Um, that is the reason that we're staying isolated is for each other. If we decide that we're not going to do it, it doesn't work. But we've all decided that for the common good, we the people are going to stay in our houses for a little while. And that is a truly national development that actually gives me a great deal of heart. Um, there are, of course, a few protesters who are out there in the streets. They represent a really striking minority as polls continue to show and, and as even the news broadcasts continue to show. Most of us want to take care of most of us and are doing something that, as you point out, is really hard for the benefit of those among us who are older and compromised and uh, may have real problems with the pandemic. Um, there are still other steps that we need to take in order to ensure a baseline of economic security. Um, many Americans are giving to charity even as they watch their own retirement accounts fall through the stock market. Um, that again is more selflessness because in a way a pandemic like this kind of shows you who we are. That's the good news. What does democracy look like after this? I think it new ways of collaboration, new ways of communication, new ways of persuasion. Um, we'll be talking to ourselves about the upcoming election through distance rather than out in the streets. Um, might mean new ways of advocacy too. I would not be surprised to find uh, new groups that arise and new avenues to influence legislators. I would not be at it in any way surprised to see a new surge of interest in running for political office. Um, we've seen crises generate political activism. And that's not only among those of us who've sort of been in the political arena, um, always welcome but among a whole bunch of people who are new to the political arena, who look around and see that they don't like what they're seeing and think if there's nobody else they'd rather see in office, they want to run themselves. Um, we've had, after a series of past crises, an immense surge of interest in running for office among youth, among kids. Um, and I say kids because some of the people running for city council or even mayor are 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, still teenagers. We saw a bunch of state legislatures elected in 2017 who were 20 and 21 and 22. And I would not be at all surprised to see this pandemic produce um, an upswelling of political activity, not only among plain old people who are just talking to each other in new ways, but among people who actually want to be part of the solution after we're all allowed to gather again. 
So uh, first of all, thank you. That is kind of a, a, a breath of mental fresh air to think that there's sort of a, a hopeful silver lining or maybe a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of democracy. So I think a lot of people have been really dismayed by what we've seen in terms of norm and law busting by the administration over the last few years. And so I like the idea that we might see a groundswell of pro-democratic, of community involvement uh, type energy coming out of the current public health crisis. You brought up before the term guardrails, which I think is a useful idea that, you know, maybe we, we can hope for that kind of infusion of community spirit. But at the same time, we set up a system with legal safeguards, with norms and guardrails, as you said, and a lot of those have been eroded in recent years. So let's say we got rid of democracy for the few minutes we have left in the show, and we crowned Professor Levitt emperor, uh, so that in the next term of Congress, when we have a new administration, you are in charge of instituting democratic voting and democracy-involved uh, reforms. What would be your wish list? What would be the top priorities for Emperor Levitt? Is it voting protections after your emperorship? Is it redistricting? Is it gerrymandering, voting technology? Is it, you know, rebuilding the Justice Department after Attorney General Barr? What would be the, the number two, three, one things you would do? So actually, I appreciate the question. I'm going to fight the premise because I think actually the first thing I do is I abolish the title emperor. And that's before I get to do any of the things I want. We have a dangerous fixation in this country on single person solutions um, and celebrity. And I think it is not unique to this president. I think it is aggrandized in this president, but we have looked for saviors in our political office for far too long. And that is long-term dangerous. When people don't find saviors in presidency, they look for saviors in the Supreme Court, and that is just as dangerous. I think that the genius of the founding was actually realizing that we do better when we all care about local offices, um, when the most important office you're voting on isn't the president, uh, but is your city council member. And that actually diffuses power. I think it's really hard to keep power that is so vastly centralized from going awry. Um, and we're sort of seeing the fruits of that right now. So uh, if I had, I mean, there's no question that the presidential election this November is critically important, but I don't want people to just check one box when they go to the polls this November, when they mail in their ballot this November. I want them to look really hard at all of the offices on that list. And in fact, uh, Los Angeles has done something I think is magnificent. There's an experiment on now, the first uh, races on your ballot this November are local races. And they'll force you to work through the local races first before you get to president because those are actually, if not, they're probably just as important and maybe in many ways tangibly for people at home, more important. So the first thing I do is get rid of all the emperors. The second thing I do is suggest to we the people, all the bodies that actually are designing the laws for us, um, that yeah, we fix the election structure. Uh, there's a reason that HR 1, the first bit of business for the new Congress uh, that came in was a broad sweeping electoral reform. Um, we have still too many barriers, some intentional, some unintentional. And when, on your, when you're on the other side of one of those barriers, it doesn't matter whether it was intentional or unintentional, it feels just the same. 
Um, we have too many barriers to people being able to express their preference for who should lead it. That's thing one. Thing two, I actually think that part of the norm breaking has forced us to realize what it is we value and how much we value it. Um, in that way, it's something of a service. When there is a deep threat to the sorts of things you care about most, it turns out you pay a little more attention to the things that are being threatened. Um, and once you have lost the rule of law, it's really hard to get back. So I think actually codifying some of those normative assumptions that we have put in place, um, and not only that, a lot of the way that we run this country is based on delegated authority to executives that we trust to do the right thing. I think it's nice to be able to trust the executive to do the right thing, but I would actually welcome Congress taking some of that power back. Um, there are a number of emergency statutes where the president has used the power that Congress has given. And I think there are very real questions about whether that power ever should have been given quite as freely in the first place. And so I think that has to do in part with some of the missteps of the Department of Justice. It has to do with in part some of the missteps in some of the other big federal agencies. Um, but I would take a real strong look at some of the delegations of power that have been made over the past decades to see whether we think that they are properly delegated, uh, both when there's a person in the White House we trust and when there's one that we don't. Um, because we're not always, we're not always going to get the president we hope for. Occasionally we'll get the president we deserve. And our laws and structures should be robust enough to actually uh, accommodate both of those things. Oh, what did we get to deserve this most recent president? Oh, come on. <laughs> Democrats deserve that completely. We, 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 we almost wished for it in 2016. We acted like we just, we, we, took, we took American democracy for granted. And really what Professor Levitt, you are addressing at its deep root, I think is the civics 101 part of what it means to be a citizen and what it has always meant to be a citizen and what that American democracy depends for its vitality and effectiveness on an engaged and active citizenry that for too, too long, too many uh, have been complacent. Um, and if uh, in what we're seeing in this great experiment, I think, is that complacency does not breed effective government. Complacency ends up delivering the kind of government that some would say you deserve because of your complacency. Um, but uh, certainly given the current government, and, and, and I'll say this with, um, with, with, with complete openness about my partisanship, uh, one of the saddest and most distressing things is not so much the capriciously malignant nature of the president of the United States, but it is the destruction of government in terms of well, rooting out uh, effectiveness wherever possible um, for, for no purpose other than either ideology of the president or his advisors. But elections have consequences. And you've pointed out that the most important thing at, at, out of this pandemic we can do is to reinvigorate citizenship. And for every single one of us, no matter what party or what persuasion, to engage in the public square 
uh, in a way that is productive and constructive and to understand at the end that we're all Americans and we have a country to save. And I'll say that that's abundantly true. I agree with every word of that. Um, It is easy to get caught up in the short term, uh, especially when a pandemic reminds you that every day is a year. But I'm also a civil rights lawyer and we tend to think generationally. And if you ask yourself, even in the current moment, are we doing as well as we could? Um, If you expand that and think, are we better off now than we were 30 years ago or 60 years ago or 90 years ago or 120 years ago? The answer there is inevitably yes. And that's because we are learning together what it means to keep a republic. Exactly as you say, we're getting better at this. And I think once we get through the crises of the moment, we'll continue to have the opportunity to get better still. Thank you, Professor Justin Levitt of the Loyola Law School for joining Matt Roberson and Paul Hodes on Off the Record on WKXL AM and FM. We'll be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the internet. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Binge listen to all our shows on nhtalkradio.com. We've had a fascinating discussion, Matt, with Professor Justin Levitt of the Loyola Law School about the roots of our democracy, about gerrymandering, about the census, about voting, about what citizenship means. We've had visits from President Vladimir Putin and uh, Ethan Gary from Massachusetts. We've had time travel, we've had space travel, all while hunkered in our bunker. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to the sponsors who keep the radio station on the air. And uh, we'll see you next week with more Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes.